I love the difference that uh, was first pointed out to me by Jim Garrett uh, about the difference between the miraculous and the providence, the providence of God and the miraculous. The truly miraculous is things that can't happen in, an, in the natural world. Providence is still God moving, and so sometimes we forget that, that God moves through providence uh, by orchestrating human actions, human thoughts, movement, etc., etc., or natural things. So this morning, it's very interesting. This was an example of the providence of God. Uh, Hallett's in the habit of when he is preparing to sing, uh, to lead worship, uh, of looking and seeing if there's a sermon PowerPoint. We have, everybody know what Dropbox is? We have a Dropbox folder that have, the worship team has access to, and I upload it to Dropbox to put it on this computer. And so how it looks to see what I'm going to preach about, or maybe sometimes Jim Grinnell if he has his up there uh, early enough, and then he tries to hear from the Holy Spirit what, what is appropriate based on that. And he did that this time, and man, he nailed it this week. Every song was really right on line with what we're going to preach today. And then Dallas just played What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And I had two songs I was working with for the end for a response at the end of the message today, and one was that, and I actually prepared a video for it, and then I came across another one, which we'll hear at the end, and uh, which I thought was just as appropriate, and I hoped that Hallett would include that. I never said anything to him, but he did. And so all these things to say that this is the providence of God as he moves and plans and purposes what he has in mind for this Sunday morning. And you know, it's no less God than if Hallett had no clue what I was going to preach and just divinely heard. It's still no less God leading. And so we take God's providence, which we really see more often, we take it for granted, but it's still God. That had really nothing to do with today's sermon, but I thought it was appropriate to mention that. I do think it's appropriate to mention that we all have challenges in our lives. Anybody here doesn't have any challenges. Everything's always cool. Everything's going. All right. I didn't expect to see any hands go up with that. You know, maybe some of us just have everyday worries. Maybe there are difficult burdens that we bear, and any of these things can cause us to have what we might call a bad day or a bad week or a bad month or a bad year. You know you've had a bad day when people give you the senior citizen discount and you're only 37. You know you've had a bad day when people send your wife sympathy cards on your anniversary. Or the Department of Biological Warfare asks for your stew recipe. That's a bad day. Or you go to a fortune teller and the fortune teller charges you half price. Think about it. Or you discover that your 12-year-old's idea of humor is putting crazy glue in your preparation H. Ooh, ouch. Or you wake up to the soothing sound of running water. Isn't that great? But then you remember that you just bought a water bed. It's not so soothing. Or your doctor tells you you're allergic to chocolate chip cookies. Oh, no. Bad thing. Any of these things might be the mark of a bad day, but in real life, many of us, probably most of us, would truly settle for these kinds of things. Well, maybe not the preparation age, the crazy glue, or come to think of it, maybe not the chocolate chip cookies either. But we'd be happily trading these kinds of things for the genuine burdens that we carry around with us, like a heavy boulder on our shoulder. Just a few weeks ago in the elders' meeting, the brothers were noticing that our agenda has been relatively light in recent weeks. We can go through seasons where we have so many things to discuss, we can't possibly get to it all, and things get delayed and delayed. 
But the other thing we noticed is even though our agenda for quote-unquote business has been relatively light, our prayer list for you, our brothers and sisters in this fellowship, has been very full of very hard things. And aside, you need to know, TCF, you need to know that the elders pray as a group for all of you by name, every individual one of you at one time or another, not every week, but at one time or another we pray for all of you. We think that's part of our responsibility as elders. Now, I was actually on track to preach something completely different when this past weekend some very difficult things in my own life caused me to reconsider and change the direction that I believe God would have us go this morning. So the theme that I was going to explore, it can wait. It's not particularly timely. It can wait for the next time I'm in the pulpit. But I can look around this room, and when I see many of your faces, I can't help but think of the things that I know that you're going through, the burdens you are bearing, and some of those burdens you've been bearing for years. And then I can't help but think about what the Word of God has to say about such things. For example, these two verses, which we'll major on this morning, as along with other verses. First, from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. And then Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, some versions say prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So the Word of God recognizes with great clarity that we do get anxious about things. We worry. We bear emotional and physical and spiritual burdens. All of us do. We carry them around. And some of them never seem to leave us. And the constancy of bearing that burden brings stress and weariness. Sometimes that stress even has physical manifestations. Yet the word is also just as clear as it is that we all worry, that we all have anxieties, that we all have cares and burdens. The word is also just as clear that God walks with us through these things. I will never leave you or forsake you, Jesus said. More than that, the word tells us that Jesus will carry this load. He can lift the burden from us, and sometimes that means removing the burden. But sometimes that means bearing it for us, carrying it for us. The burden is still there, and the situation that causes it to be a burden is still a burden. And it hasn't changed, but the weight of it no longer plagues us, and we experience peace in our hearts, even though the circumstances haven't changed. Now think about that phrase in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, the peace that passes understanding. The peace within that guards our hearts and guards our minds. Why does it pass understanding? Have you thought about what that phrase means? It passes, well, another way of saying that might be that it doesn't make sense to our natural minds. We have peace. It doesn't make sense. How can we possibly have peace? We're not supposed to have peace when we're waiting on a circumstance to change. Turmoil is still swirling all around us. Chaos still reigns. Yet there's peace in our hearts. It doesn't make sense, does it? 
to our natural minds. That's why this God-given peace is described as passing understanding. And it is, in fact, God-given. Jesus told, him, told us that himself when he said to his disciples in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace. My peace, he says. Jesus speaking to his disciples. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, I give to you. In other words, I'm not giving you the world's kind of peace. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So again, this peace is God-given. Jesus said it's not like the world's peace. The world's peace, think about it, it depends on circumstances, doesn't it? Sometimes the world's peace also might depend on denying reality because we can't have that kind of peace when things are still bad. So we deny reality and we just get into the positive thinking mode. I mean, it's good to have a positive outlook toward life, but positive thinking doesn't change circumstances and it doesn't usually just change our heart. The world's peace means circumstances must change for what we perceive to be the better before we can experience that peace. Jesus' peace, on the other hand, keeps our hearts from being troubled. Jesus' peace reminds us that he is with us. Jesus' peace reminds us that God is large and in charge of our lives and our circumstances, regardless of what those circumstances tell us. Jesus' peace points to God's plan and God's purposes and reminds us that everything, everything that happens to the believer in Christ is for our good and for his glory. Yes, even the things that are hard. Things don't have to improve. Life doesn't have to get better for us to experience God's peace that passes understanding. The world's peace doesn't happen until things are already good. The world's peace is dependent on good things. So because of that, it's fleeting. It's transitory. It doesn't last. But the peace that passes understanding can ignore the good or the bad because it's entirely dependent on God giving it to us. Any of us who have walked with the Lord for a while and have practiced what these verses say, the verses we read at the beginning, in other words, we've prayed about whatever it is we're anxious about or we've cast this burden on the Lord, any of us can probably tell of at least some occasions in your life, in your Christian life, when you felt this peace. And what a marvelous thing that it truly is. It's the peace that passes understanding. It's the kind of peace we crave when we're anxious, when we worry, when we carry these huge boulders on our shoulders. I don't know about you, but when I have things hit me in life that steal my peace, I want to be able to more consistently experience that peace that passes understanding. I want to do it more consistently. I want to be able to present my requests to God. I want to be able to cast my anxieties on Him, just like I take off a heavy backpack and ask someone to carry that for me because that person is able, better able, more able than I am to carry it. And yes, I can't deny that I'd certainly like the circumstances of my life to change for the better. That's okay. I don't mind that. I wouldn't mind that at all. But I don't want to depend on the circumstances improving for me to have peace because sometimes they just don't. They don't now. They don't later. That's the world's peace, not the peace that Jesus 
promised to give us. This peace from God doesn't mean we don't care. It doesn't mean we're not concerned about whatever is causing our anxiety. When I take a heavy backpack off my back and give it to someone else to carry, the load is the same. It's just as heavy. But someone else is carrying it for me. Back to our opening verse in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, Peter wrote, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Now anxiety here means care that brings disruption to the personality and to the mind. Anybody relate to that? Caring so much about something that it's disruptive to your mind, your thinking processes, even disruptive to your personality. Anxiety about many things can change the way we even relate to other people. So sometimes this isn't just an internal battle because other people can see that we're dealing with it. So this is the kind of burden the Lord wants us to cast on himself. We see at the beginning of this verse that this casting our anxieties on him starts with what? Starts with humility. It says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, Peter wrote. Humbling ourselves means realizing, first, and then admitting, secondly, that we can't carry whatever the burden is. It means realizing and acknowledging that God can carry it. It means realizing that his hand may somehow be in these circumstances that we want to just get rid of. It sometimes means saying, God, I don't understand this burden. I don't understand this anxiety. I don't understand this situation that's causing it. I don't know why it has to be this way. But I humble myself before you because you're God and I'm not. You are mighty and I am weak. Your hand is able to bear that burden. And I need you to do it because I can't. So I trust you. I trust you. Another thing I want to notice in these verses, there's a proper time, Peter tells us, that we'll be exalted or lifted up. Now exalted here means to heighten, to raise high, to elevate, to lift up. Proper time indicates appropriate time or opportune time or the fit time or due time. In God's economy, this means the best time. This is one key place where trusting in God comes in because when we're hurting, when we're bearing a burden that's just too heavy for us, we think the best time for it to be over is now, right? Or yesterday. But God's time is always perfect because his word declares that he sees the end from the beginning. This relates to the passes understanding idea that we see in Philippians. I don't understand why this can't be over now. Or why is this happening at all now? But when we bring our prayers, when we bring our petitions to him, when we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, when we cast all our anxieties on him. We're trusting that he knows the right time, that he knows the perfect time to accomplish anything specific in our lives. We humble ourselves and say, I trust you to do what's best, and I trust you to do it when it's best. That's what we're doing when we humble ourselves. Now, how hard is this for us to do? Can we admit that it's pretty much impossible to accomplish on our own? This is really hard, folks. We can't just try. 
It's impossible without the enabling grace of God at work through his Holy Spirit in the lives of the heart of every believer in Christ. It relates to several of those superpowers that we looked at just a few weeks ago, like the fruit of the Spirit. How about joy? How can we have joy when things are hard? That just doesn't make sense, does it? It's a Spirit-empowered gift to the believer in Christ. We can't have true joy without the activity of the Holy Spirit at work inside of us as believers in Christ. Any other kind of joy is fleeting, and it's entirely, as we noted a moment ago, it's entirely dependent on the circumstances, and it's not dependent so much on God. Or peace. How about that peace that passes understanding? It's a Spirit-empowered gift to those of us who are in Christ and have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And then there's patience. I want the hard things to be gone from my life now, today, better yet this minute. But God's Holy Spirit can equip me to be patient, to equip, can equip me to wait on the Lord because He's God and I'm not, and He has that perfect time in His hands. So finding and experiencing that peace that passes understanding isn't something we just decide to do and grit our teeth and try harder. I'm going to have peace. I'm going to have joy. I'm going to have patience. Doesn't work, does it? Our will, of course, is involved. It must be. But it's more along the lines of giving up, not like trying harder. Surrendering. Surrendering in trust to the God who cares for us. Surrendering to his plans. Surrendering to his purposes. Surrendering to his timing. And surrendering is hard too because it forces us to give up control. And if there's one thing we all want, it's control. We want control of our lives. We want control of our every moment. We want to be control of our lives and our circumstances. But Peter wrote, humble yourselves. Giving up control is quite humbling. Paul wrote to the Philippians, let your requests be made known to God in prayer and supplication or petition. Now think of the traditional posture of prayer. Where are we? We're on our knees, right? That's the traditional posture of prayer. In that traditional posture of prayer, we're recognizing something. So yes, we can also recognize that when we sit and pray or stand and pray, but it's the heart attitude I'm referring to. So let's think of it this way and talk about mixing metaphors. In our hearts, are we on our knees? Are we on our knees? On our knees, we acknowledge that we're approaching someone who has the power or the ability to grant our request, and it's a power that we don't have. That's a very humble and vulnerable place to be, isn't it? It's humbling to ask someone to do something for you. In our pride, in our self-sufficiency, that's not something that we're inclined to do. We don't want to do that. But in our humility, before the maker of the universe, it's really the only appropriate thing to do. We humble ourselves, as Peter wrote. We make our requests known to God, Paul wrote. In doing that, there's trust. He can do what we ask for, and we can't. He can bear that burden that we're trying to carry on our own, and we can't bear it. Jerry Bridges wrote that prayer is the tangible expression of our dependence on God. We are 
dependent on him. We can recognize that. We can humble ourselves. We can ask for help. We can cast our anxieties on him and receive his peace. Or we can be independent. We can think we don't need him or don't need him that so much, right? And we can go on our weary way and not experience that peace that passes understanding and continue to be burdened by our anxious thoughts. This is where our will and our choice come in. Will we trust God? Will we believe what the Word of God reveals about the character of God, about His love for us, and about His ability to do what we can't do, about His perfect plans, His ability not to do just anything but what's truly for our good because He knows best? And will we believe that when we don't see it, either immediately or maybe even in this lifetime? Peter tells us God will exalt or lift us up. The original language here refers to lifting something to a higher location. Don't we see the big picture better from a higher vantage point? Isn't that maybe one way God lifts us up when it promises this? So we know from Scripture the key is humility. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. The way up is down. The lowly one becomes the lifted one. There is a marked advantage to humility. Eventually, it brings honor. Jesus himself said, whoever humbles himself will be humbled, and whoever, whoever exalts himself, excuse me, will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In Matthew 23, verse 12, he will lift us up out of trouble. Or he will lift us up in our spirits and comforts under trouble. He will lift us up to honor and safety in the world, or he will lift us up in our way to heaven so as to raise our hearts and affections above the world. Isn't that good? He wants to raise our hearts and affections above the world and the things that we want, some of which may be good things, but maybe they're not God things. God will revive the spirit of the humble, he will hear the desire of the humble, and he will at last lift them up in glory before honor is humility. The highest honor in heaven will be the reward of the greatest humility on earth. So consistently carrying my worries, carrying my stresses, my daily struggles by myself might be an indicator that I have not trusted God fully with my life. It takes humility, however, to recognize that God cares, and to admit my need. I need him. I need him every hour. If we're going to submit, let's be careful to surrender not to our circumstances, because our circumstances only bring anxiety and worry, but rather let's surrender to the Lord who controls those circumstances and has our good in mind through them. This is a consistent theme we see throughout many passages of Scripture. We've just read a couple of them this morning, but here's just a few more. Matthew chapter 11, 28 through 30, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We read in Psalm 68, 19, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burdens, the God who is our salvation. And Philippians 4, 6, which we've already read, Do not be anxious about anything. 
John 14, 7, don't let your heart be troubled and do not be afraid. Psalm 37, verse 8, do not fret. Anybody fret? Matthew 6, 25, do not worry. And Psalm 55, verse 22, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. That's the passage that Peter was quoting in 1 Peter from Psalm 55. So this is a theme that we see again and again in God's word. The Lord says to us, trust in me, not in your ability to handle things. I find myself asking this question. Am I as vigilant about not worrying, about not bearing my own cares alone, as I am about the other things that God commands me not to do? I'd have to say, probably not. I'm speaking for myself. That's because I think sometimes we tend to justify worry. We somehow tend to make it a little more more noble. That's what God has over the years at least repeatedly convicted me of. I've had seasons in my life when worry has been pretty far from me, when I've been able to truly trust and fully trust in the Lord with all my heart. I've also had seasons when the peace of God that passes all understanding has been very, very real to me, even in the midst of very difficult, very hard, burdensome circumstances. But somehow my trust leaks, and I take back those worries that I've given to the Lord already. I, I've taken that heavy backpack and ca- cast it on him, and he carries it, and I feel good. And then I thought, well, maybe I should help carry that a little bit. Anybody here relate to that? Probably nobody else but me, right? I take that too heavy backpack, and the next day I pick it up, and I carry it again. Something will get me worrying, and then it's just, it's just as if everything I've learned, all I've grown in related to trusting God is right out the window. There have been sleepless nights, days at a time, with anxious thoughts, and honestly, a lot of what I'd have to classify as nothing other than worry. Now, because these things sometimes weren't about me personally, that is, I wasn't worrying about my money or my job or my illness or something like that, I tended to think that these worries of mine were somehow above those admonitions to cast my cares on him. While I'd experienced peace for a season, circumstances would worsen, and I'd begin to stew and to fret and to worry about these things all over again. I'd come to believe that there really is a difference between worry and concern. Now, one preacher called it the difference between constructive concern and deconstructive worry. It's kind of like the difference between, um, between uh, God's grace at work in our lives uh, that brings conviction and condemnation. It's a little bit like that. There are things about which I believe it is legitimate to express or even to feel deeply concerned. But constructive concern leads us to deeper prayer, to fuller reliance on God. Constructive concern doesn't lead us to carrying a burden that we can't carry. Now, deconstructive concern or deconstructive worry, on the other hand, just leads to deeper worry. Deconstructive worry, unlike constructive concern, depletes our emotional resources. Anybody you could just get emotionally worn out when you're carrying a burden? It drains our energy. Deconstructive worry also includes a very uh, familiar circular reasoning process. Your worry takes you round and round, but it's not just round and round, it's down, round and round on a downward spiral, okay? 
And it always brings you kind of back to the same point. Here's an example. I have to pass my test tomorrow. If I don't pass my test tomorrow, I'll be put on academic probation. If I'm on academic probation, I could get thrown out of school. If I get thrown out of school, I'll never find a good job. If I don't find a good job, I'll never be able to buy a house. And if I can't buy a house, how can I ever get married? I have to pass my test tomorrow. And then you go all over again, right? You revisit the whole thing. Think about it. After all our worry, when we do that downward spiral, we never come one inch closer toward a solution, which could maybe actually help us pass the test. Constructive concern seeks a solution. Try this. I have a test tomorrow. I better stay in and study, and I really better submit this to the Lord for his grace and his help. I better ask for God's help. See the difference? The second approach moves you from a problem to a solution. And more importantly, the second approach involves the Lord in the process. You notice the Lord wasn't in that first downward spiral at all. It involves the Lord in the process. Another phrase I've come across that describes this downwardly spiraling thought pattern is catastrophizing. Anybody heard that phrase? Anybody seen that at work? Okay. Catastrophizing is an irrational thought in believing that something is far worse than it really is. You make a catastrophe. Another way of, uh, the old-fashioned way of saying it is you make a mountain out of a molehill, right? It's that idea. Catastrophizing can take two different forms. First of all, you make a catastrophe out of a current situation. Or secondly, you imagine making a catastrophe out of a future situation. The test example that we just looked at is kind of an example of both in action in some ways. The second kind of catastrophizing is similar to the first, but it's more mental and it's also more future-oriented. This kind of catastrophizing occurs when we look to the future and we anticipate all the things that are going to go wrong and we create a reality around those thoughts. For example, it's all going to go bad for me. It's all going to go bad for me. I just don't see any way around it. Well, catastrophes, catastrophizing is like striking out in your mind before you even get to the plate, to use a baseball analogy. But in Christ, knowing that whatever burdens we bear, we have a burden bearer who is able to carry them. And knowing that our burden bearer always has in mind our good and his glory in whatever the circumstances might be, there's really no room for catastrophizing or deconstructive worry. And this is consistent with our theme this morning. Catastrophizing robs you of your peace doesn't it? You can't help but have no peace at all in your hearts and in your mind when you catastrophize. So having the kind of care or anxiety that's spoken of in these passages of scripture we've looked at this morning is more than just a legitimate or constructive concern. It's being loaded down, burdened with a load of worry. Again, that picture, picture yourself with a heavy boulder on your shoulder, feeling the weight of it emotionally, carrying a weight that literally keeps us from what God has for us to do, keeps us pinned to the ground. Again, that's, that, that's why it's similar to what we looked at a moment ago, mentioned a minute ago, the difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction spurs you on to improve, to repent, and to do better, whereas condemnation just, it keeps its thumb on you, and you're just you're never going to get up. This is a very similar idea here. Carrying a weight that literally keeps us from what God has for us to do 
and hinders our relationship with others and with God. Our attitude sometimes when we think about worries is similar to the disciples in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. In this passage, they'd just been with Jesus the whole day, and they were on their way to another town when they encountered a big storm on the lake, and the disciples got so worried that they became fearful and they became upset. They rushed to Jesus, who was sound asleep at the back of the boat, and they asked him a question, but it was more of an accusation than a question. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? This time, Jesus showed he cared. And what did he do? He changed the circumstances. He calmed the storm. But we also have to realize, and there's a song that gives this message. It says, sometimes he calms the storm. Other times, he calms his child. Whether he calms the storms of our lives to relieve our worries, or he chooses to calm us by carrying our load of worry and anxiety so we don't have to. The question the disciples asked of Jesus, don't you care, has already been asked and answered in the most amazing, incredible, marvelous way we can imagine through his suffering and death for us on the cross and his resurrection, his victory over sin and death. The incarnation and all that resulted from that answered for us in the most compelling, the most complete way we can have answered the question, don't you care? And think of this too. All of the burdens that we can't possibly carry, of all those burdens that he will carry for us, our sins are the most significant ones that we must lay at the foot of the cross because we're unable to carry those, we're unable to do anything about those in and of ourselves. My brothers and sisters in Christ, worry and bearing our own burdens cannot survive in our hearts when we surrender these things to God's tender, loving care. Anxiety and worry die in us when we go to the Lord through prayer, through his word, when we cast our worries and our cares on him. When we lay our burdens down at the foot of the cross. So this morning, as we prepare to close, uh, we're going to hear a piece of music that relates to this theme. We're going to have to uh, have, a, have an opportunity now to respond to his word. And we're going to listen to a song that relates to uh, surrendering our burdens to him. So this pulpit, in case you've never noticed, is in the shape of a cross. Everybody got that, right? You haven't figured that out? This morning, you have in your bulletins a sheet of scrap paper. And if you don't have a bulletin, we have some extra ones up here. Okay? So what I'm going to do as the closing, songs play, closing song plays in just a few minutes, I'm going to ask you to write down on that sheet of paper just one or two words. God knows. You don't have to go and write a long, long prayer request. Just maybe one or two words. Fold that and come up and put it in this basket. There's some pens if you don't have a pen. There's some extra scraps of paper. And I'm going to take a pen and one here and do it myself. Now, you know, there's nothing magical about coming up here and responding in this way today. You're certainly free to seek God's grace right where you are. You're certainly free to be seated there and lay your burdens before him in your heart, just like you can, have, uh, you can be on your knees in your heart, right? 
But sometimes God will use these visual reminders to help us remember. Sometimes he'll use these visual reminders to access his grace, hopefully symbolizing in our hearts that God will always carry that burden when we surrender it to him. Even though our tendency is to take it back and to try to carry it again on our own, we don't have to. We don't have to. We don't have to take it back. He promises to carry it and to keep carrying it. So what I want to do this morning, and I'm going to do, and some of you are going to want to do as well, leave it at the foot of the cross right here in this basket. So as the song plays here in closing, and uh, it's about a four-minute song, I'm writing down two things on my sheet here that I want to lay at the foot of the cross, the burden that I'm bearing. I want you to respond as the Lord would lead you. It's only about four minutes, so don't dawdle. Come quickly, and let's respond as the Lord would lead us.